Hey guys, welcome to Today's the Day with Zach Anderson. This episode is brought to you by Alchemy Sales Coaching. I hope you guys enjoy. First and foremost, out the gates, Dave, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you. I'm stoked for this episode for some different reasons, which we're going to dive into. Um, So thank you so much for being here. Thank you guys for listening. Really quick, so you guys know who we're speaking with, Mr. Dave Allred made his way down here. Just so you guys can have an idea of who Dave is, I'm going to go through a couple things, and we're going to dive into his story and, and, and go a little bit deeper. But Mr. Dave, you've been a, whether you realize it or not, like in the background, like I've known of you for a very long time. It's been really cool to kind of go to things that you present at and get more familiar with you. And now the podcast is like the the deepest level of understanding for me. And I, I love it. So real quick though on you, um, number one, you were born into a destitute family. I'm curious about how growing up and all that came about by 17 years old, you were completely on your own. You became a millionaire by 26 years old, which is crazy. You spent 15 years at Vivint. And then you transitioned over to Vivint Solar. You managed 121 sales teams over 42 countries or 42 states, I believe. Um, you set a goal when you were 30 years old to have ownership in a thousand rental rental doors by 40, and you hit that. And now, where you sit, you're you're obviously an executive business consultant. You speak, um, but you're a managing partner and CEO of Axia Partners, which have done some very cool projects, especially people in Utah Valley. I'll be very familiar with, which I'm excited to talk about. And then just some other things that you've spoken on stages worldwide. Right now you have a wife and four kids. You guys launched the All Red Family Foundation, which is really cool. And I want to get into it and, and learn more about that. And then one thing that just kind of stood out to me on your your like life your life spreadsheet is you've, you've had a Mount Everest expedition, which is to me extremely interesting. And I want to talk about that too. But let's rewind all the way, like back to day one. So born into a destitute family, if you don't mind speaking on it, what exactly does that mean in your situation? You got it, man. First of all, thanks for the opportunity to be here, Zach. Excited, man. Love what you're doing here. So grew up in a small town called Manta, Utah. It's about 2,000, 3,000 people. And um, yeah, just, you know, it was a really low-income home. Um, we never really talked about business, finances, investing, any of that stuff. And in fact, we went to, you know, Yellowstone every year for vacations. And I thought my parents loved, you know, na- national parks, but really, you know, it's free to get into, into it or whatever. Right. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I, uh, my sister, older sister ran away when she was 15. And then, you know, when I was 17, I decided to run away from home and, um, moved into a little home over in E from Utah. And, uh, we were paying $220 in rent per month. And it was like, the roof was falling in cockroaches. Who were you with? It was just me to begin with. So it was by myself. It was the only thing I knew how to, you know, I didn't have any other opportunities, any options. Yeah. I was driving this 1959 CJ5 Jeep. It was a piece, it was a piece <laughs> of shit, man. Honestly, That's amazing. Twice on the freeway, on the highway, the, the hood flew up. You know, we're going 60 miles per hour. You can't even see it. Can't see a thing. And if having to duct tape the hood down. Um, <laughs> you know, but uh, yeah, so 17, moved in by myself and, you know, how did, of- on that, I'm sorry to cut you off. How did that even come to be? 17, how do you decide at 17 years old to be like, okay. I'm out. Like, I'm, I'm going to go, if, like, how, how does that happen? You know, I don't want to disparage my parents at all because yeah. I, I really do believe they did, they did the best they knew how to do, right? And and so, and, and, and I, I'll share the story. I'll get pretty open with you about it. But I want to preface it by saying I'm actually very grateful for having gone mm. through all this. Yeah. Because it's really inspired me, you know, with how I'm trying to show up as a parent and as a father and as a husband. And so yeah. I'm actually super great. I'm, I, I wouldn't have changed any of this. But, um, you know, my parents got separated three times for about a year at a time. And they kept trying to come back together for the kids. Yep. And so the, their intention was pure, but it just ended up in fighting and arguing. And 
I mean, it was a lot of, it was just very, very dysfunctional and it was heavy. And as a teenager, I just realized it was, it was really slowing me down and mm-hmm. I, mean, I was always getting in trouble. And, and part of it was probably my fault. You know, I was, I wasn't a great kid. I had a lot of fun, you know, definitely got in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And, um, you know, whether that's their fault or my fault, I don't know, but I definitely got in a lot of trouble along the way. And so but I was always grounded. I was always, yeah. you know, I went to get my, my driver's license and, uh, I, did, I got a perfect pass. You score on it, but your parents have to sign off on it. Mm-hmm. And they took it away from me, um, because, you know, I wasn't, I don't know, I don't remember why, but I got grounded. And so they took away the, you know, the option of having a license. And that happened again, the second time and the third time. And so, you know, and every time there's a school dance, or something I was excited about ended up getting taken away from me, right? Mm. And and, yeah, yeah. and so it was just, and there's a lot of, you know, just fighting and, and dysfunction. In general, I'd say it's just very, very dysfunctional. Yeah. And so, and, you know, I, I wanted more in my life. And I knew I was willing to do whatever it took to change all of this. I knew there was a better opportunity. And I just remember making a commitment. I don't know exactly how I made this commitment, but it was, hey, Dave, I'm going to do whatever it takes to completely reset the standard. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what that's going to take, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to reset the standard and change the level of happiness, success, legacy, you know, resolving trauma, whatever else, and just yeah. really change the game completely. Like a personal commitment, like you yeah. signed a contract like with yourself. Burning, burning commitment, man. That's and, so um, cool. And I had no idea how I was going to do it. It was just, <laughs> hey, this is unacceptable, and we can do so much better than this. And, you know, that's what really led me when, I, when you know, fast forward a few minutes, a few years when I was at Snow College and there's a recruiting booth set up and, you know, it was to go out and, and knock doors. That's actually what made me pull the trigger on that because I knew it was going to be hard. I didn't want to do it, right? Nobody wants yeah. to go out and go knock doors for the most part. <laughs> yeah. But I saw it as that opportunity as a way to be able to get ahead. But, you know, backing up a little bit. So 17 ran away. And then my little brother ran away a year later when he turned 17, moved in with me. So it was just the two of us. And you probably felt like you had to, like, look over. I'm assuming as an older brother, you probably took it upon yourself to, like, absorb that parent role in a way. Like he's 17. 100%. Yeah, I can 100%, imagine. Right? I can imagine. Talk about kind of creating more maturity pretty quick. I mean, yeah. like you're literally, and we're eating, you know, ramen noodles and fast food every day. And it's just like, we're just surviving, honestly. And we drive all the way to Gunnison and go work at this, uh, this manufacturing plant making fiberglass flagpoles, mm-hmm. making like, I don't know, five or six bucks an hour. And <laughs> it was rough, man. We were just literally just surviving. Yeah. Not thriving at all, just surviving. Yeah. And um, with that, though, do you remember a sense of, uh, out of curiosity, and again, I apologize to cut you off. I'm just like trying to get in the headspace of you. Do you remember a sense of freedom, like in any sense of the word? Like I, I can imagine that you're just surviving. And I think back to times where I was like, I was packing a PB&J to go to In-N-Out with all the friends because I couldn't afford In-N-Out, but I would like to go for the experience. Like that I would consider that surviving, but I was also like, that was like the prime of like one of the primes of my life as far as experience. And like, I was, I felt so free. Yeah. Did you feel a sense of like, okay, cool. Like, you know, that's such a good question. I've actually never thought of that before. I'm a, I'm big on on freedom. Like freedom is my primary motivator. I would actually say I didn't feel freedom. I felt independence. Mm. I don't know how to articulate the difference, but freedom is like, you know, you have what you need and like you're, you're in a really positive space. I would say independence was I was proud of myself for being able to be self-dependent and mm. not being relying upon, you know, my, my, my parents. And so there's a sense of pride there that came from that independence. But you're maybe lacking some things that you would have Absolutely, liked. Man. I didn't that have makes myself freedom. I didn't have any time freedom. Yep. I didn't have any financial freedom. That makes sense. That's a, that I makes a lot of sense. Yep. I like that. Okay, cool. Sorry. Keep going. Yep. So, um, yeah, we're just, you know, we're living out there and, um, <laughs> 
you know, kind of fast. And I always had really good grades, 3.9 GPA and whatnot. But so I've always been able to kind of figure out what's important and always kind of win at what's important to me. But, um, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't planning on going on a mission. Um, but then I, I actually saw a lot of my friends coming off of, you know, LDS missions and they were just in a more composed, more of a, a better place. They seemed yeah. more mature. They seemed like they had, and, and anyway, it was a lot better. The trajectory of my friends were all going downhill pretty fast. Yeah. And so I, it was actually more of a logical decision. Hey, I want to do, again, I'm gonna do whatever it takes to put myself in a, in a good position to win in life. Mm-hmm. And that seemed like the right way to, way to go. Yeah. So shocked my girlfriend, shot my brother was, was kind of pissed about it. So he's going to leave him by himself. Yeah. All my friends were like, dude, are you serious? Like you're going to go on a mission, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I, I think it shocked literally everybody. And in fact, even when I put my papers in, you know, my application, I specifically told the, uh, you know, the church leaders say, don't tell my parents about this because I don't want them to have any like, you know, feeling of like, uh, like they had something to do with this. I didn't want them to have the f- fulfillment. Yeah. That, right. It's pretty messed yeah. up looking back on it, but I literally but it, told them, okay, I'm going to submit this, but I don't want, don't tell my parents. About like it. this is on me. Yeah. This, like you want that I'm sense doing, of, you know, I'm doing this. Yep. And so anyway, um, left, went on this mission and it was an incredible, uh, experience. You Where know? did you serve? Peru. Out Peru. Of Cuba, Peru. Uh-huh. And all four different climates down on the ocean, you know, the desert up in Puno, which is up in the highlands, 14,000 feet elevation, altitude sickness, first few days. Um, <laughs> you know, I, it was, it was wild, man. Um, and actually while we were out there, there was an 8.1 magnitude earthquake and I was right in the epicenter of it. Wildest experience I'd ever had in my life. Um, and what? so, yeah, so, you know, it was great. 1400 people died and we just started running into homes trying to, you know, trying to be a hero and trying to save people. And cause this is, that's that magnitude buildings are falling down on uh, top of people. All, like all, all, yeah, all, cool. almost all the buildings. and they're like really crappy construction. Right. Yeah. So it's, it was a mess. And and then three days of aftershocks, and I mean, I just remember each night we literally just lay there with some of the, you know, the members that had young children to kind of help them out, and we just stare up at the the light, and it's on a, a you know, one wire, a light bulb, and as soon as you start seeing that light bulb move, because mm-hmm. before you could actually feel the aftershocks, that would start to move a little bit, and then we go grab the kids, go out in the middle of the street, so you're away from the the power lines yeah. outside of the buildings, and man, it was intense. Jeez, it dude. Was, <laughs> But again, loved it. Actually, like those, to me, that life's all about this kind of experiences, you know, where you're just in it, you're doing these hard things. You, uh, yeah, anyway, I'll come, come back to that later on. But one of my things in my whole life is just being like, you know, if something scares you, you should probably do it. Yeah. It's almost like a, a life motto for me. Yeah. If something scares you, you should probably do it. Right. Running away from home, that was hard. It was scary. You know, going on a mission was hard. Going out and knocking doors was very, it was hard. It was, yeah. It was actually, it scared me, honestly. Yeah. You know, even to today, you know, Mount Everest, you know, whether it's launching a real estate fund, whether it's um, speaking on stages, you know, yeah. I've been speaking a lot lately. And the truth is I've always been very scared of public speaking mm-hmm. and, and I'm still not very good at it, but I made a commitment two years ago. Anytime somebody asked me to speak, yes, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Right. Because that's how we get better. That's how we, you know, talk about personal development. It's just doing it. Yeah. That's that to me, that's the simplest way to get past the fear and become better at something is to do it. Well, dude, and just looking at like the list, if this were a bullet point list, which it actually is in my notebook, but of like the things that you've accomplished, those things would scare anybody like owning a thousand doors. That's terrifying to even think about where do you even start? Like you do, you, you even get 10 doors. You haven't even made a dent in that. Right. So I, that's 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 terrifying. Going and being a managing partner of something like Axia Partners, which we'll dive into exactly what that is in a bit. That's terrifying. 
Like there's a lot of things. So I can tell it's your life motto. That's really cool. That's really, really cool on that too. Like with everything in your story up until now, that's that I don't even have any information on that. You're just telling me. So I'm listening to it live and like processing it. Like you had such a mature, so I'm going to make an assumption and you tell me if you think it's, it's right. And this is based off of everyone I've sat down with in my own personal experience. Like first thing you prefaced was I'm so grateful my life was this way because I wouldn't be where I'm at without it. Then you went into all these things that sound like, oh, I would never wish that upon my worst enemy type situation. But then you also touched on how your perspective, the way you looked at life was so much more mature, probably 15 years ahead of all your friends. Right. And I'm willing to make the assumption that it's probably because of all those hard things that you looked at things the way you did. Right. Like you probably got to a point that you never wanted to be at so bad, like a burning desire of like more so than I want this. You probably had a burning desire of like, I don't want this, whatever this was, that's not going to be in my future. And that was for me, that's what happened. And, and, and speaking with Todd and Casey and some of these other people, super like similar, similar situations in some cases, it's just really cool. Like, I think, I think it's cool for people to understand that those things that seem like they're the worst things in the world are actually the biggest blessings in disguise. You know, like, like what's, what's a quote from Tony Robbins that life happens for us, not to us. Yep. Right. And to me, what that really means is it's more, and we've all heard this expression, but I want to dive into a little bit. It's a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And most people operate in life with a fixed mindset, meaning that Wherever they are in life, it is what it is. It's not necessarily their fault. It's their parents' fault. It's the color of their skin. It's it's where they, they grew up. It's their education. It's whatever else, right? Mm -hmm. And whereas a growth mindset is, hey, you know, wherever you are in life is 100% your responsibility. Mm -hmm. You know, where we are in life is really just an accumulation of all the decisions we made up until that point. Yeah. And, you know, like Extreme Ownership, probably my favorite business book, Jocko Willink. Jocko Willink. Love the guy, right? We had him come out and speak to us, 107 of our sales managers in California. The guy's in, you know, I love, love the guy. You can't argue with him. It's battle-tested leadership principles. And, yep. But Extreme Ownership is so important. Um, you know, even in our family right now, we have 10, the All Red Family, 10 guiding principles. And number two is Extreme Ownership. And so all my, and it's in every one of my kids' bedrooms. It's in our family pantry. And so everybody knows exactly, you know, and I love it, man. Your <laughs> yeah, kids you're hardwiring They make an excuse. Like, hey, yeah. Rule number two, extreme ownership. Um, but the hard thing about having this growth mindset is you have to take responsibility for where you are in life. And I think a lot of people don't want to take responsibility. Exactly. They prefer to have that fixed mindset because then it's not their fault. It's mm -hmm. somebody else's fault. Yeah, exactly. And even what I've realized with that too. So Jocko Willink, Extreme Ownership, that's one of my favorite books. Um, and then the whole Tony Robbins life is happening for you, not to you. I learned that back in 20. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How old, actually, how old was I? I was 19 years old when I went to my first Tony Robbins Business Mastery Conference, and that's that was like what he hit on, and I love that. And the thing is, the thing that's super deceiving about people that aren't taking extreme ownership is they can talk like they want the best, like they have all this motivation, this drive. This is the part that confused me because I have, just in my experience, I have reps that are like, I want to be the best, I want to be the best, I want to be the best. But then when it really comes down to like where they end up, they don't take ownership for it. They'll go make a million excuses as to why they didn't go and do what they said they wanted to do. And it's kind of a confusing from the outside looking in. I think, I think extreme ownership is like through and through. There is no, to me, when I realized that there is no exception to extreme ownership is when I was like, oh, wow, that's a really powerful principle. I always thought it's like, yeah, you're totally responsible for where you're at unless like you had these circumstances growing up or this situation or you don't have this, this easy way up that everyone else has. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that was, for me, that was really, I mean, eye-opening for that when I realized there are no exceptions to extreme ownership like it's literally everyone anywhere you're at when I, when I was managing teams at Vivint it was mandatory reading for all of our, our sales managers extreme ownership also another highly recommended book is leadership and self-deception and it talks about that same thing about ego gets in the way a lot of times ego a leader's ego is actually the biggest problem in the organization mm. and then anyway we dive into a whole bunch of different tangents Absolutely. I haven't even I haven't read that one you said it's called what leadership and self-deception cool that's very cool. I like it. Okay, so then you went on your mission, came back from your mission, going from there, segueing into yeah, so here's the fun, rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, here's a fun story. So I'm going to Snow College, and there's a recruiting booth set up, Krispy Kreme Donuts, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll take a donut. That's so, dope. I know, right? That is dope. I know. It gets better. So I walk up, get the donut. They have a little brochure. Hey, we're going to have a recruiting meeting at uh, Fat Jack's Pizza that evening. So I'm like, oh, dude, Krispy Kreme donut and pizza. I'm winning already. Sure, I'll go check it out. I show up. The guys show up in, you know, Hummer and leather jackets, you know, looking the part. And uh, <laughs> next thing you know. The fact that that's how they rolled up is incredible. Hummer, Hummer H2, right? And then, What year was this? Uh, I don't want to date you, yeah, but what year yeah, was this, this if you don't want me asking? 2002. It's amazing. Yeah, that yeah. was the most badass thing they could have <laughs> yeah. rolled up in in 2002. <laughs> it, it really was. I mean, I, at that point, I was like, It's true. Wow. wow. I want what these guys have, I guess. But uh, besides the leather jackets, the Hummer was cool. Um, but, uh, so, so anyway, so next thing you know, I'm like, and I knew it was going to be hard again. I, I knew, so I wanted to be an international businessman or a professional firefighter. And that's mm-hmm. what I always wanted to do. And so anyway, I knew it was gonna be tough, but I saw it as an opportunity to get out, you know, get ahead of it and, you know, kind of accelerate, take a, a, a jump start on life. Show up in Chicago. Um, so they just walked in and pitched you and you're like, okay, yeah, this looks hard. I'm going to do it. Pretty much. Oh yeah, okay, good deal. That was the Hummer got and the, you. And the Hummer. The Hummer got you <laughs> is what it pizza, actually was. Pizza, you know, pizza, like, Krispy Kreme, Hummer, yeah. leather jacket. That's how you do it, guys. Got it. Dialed. Recruiters. I'm taking take, notes. Take notes. I'm taking notes. And then you said Chicago. Your first year was Chicago. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Let's let's the hear that. Center yeah, I was gonna say. Let's episode. hear that. And yeah. you're selling security systems. Home security. Yep. Making uh, back then the pay scale was uh, at 100 accounts. It was 295 dollar commission. So I went out my first week. I sold one account and. Got installed later on the next week. I found out there was actually a sub 600 credit score. I shouldn't have installed it. So they had to come pull out the account, charge back the $200 I got paid. And then, <laughs> so that was, that was pretty shitty. Right? The first <laughs> month I sold six accounts, which was terrible. And, um, you know, mids, and, and then the guys start dropping off like flies. And, um, 
midsummer, I'm at like 20 something accounts and we, uh, about 80% of the team had quit. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking about quitting every day, honestly, every hour, man. I was like, dude, what am I doing out here? I'm not making money. And then one of the uh, regionals came out and he gave a little presentation. He said, hey, anybody that sells 100 funded accounts may qualify to be a sales manager the next year. Mm-hmm. And, dude, something clicked for me. And I was like, hey, I could become a leader of men. I can do something, make more money. I can build a career out of this, if you will. Yeah. And like, I'm already out here. It's, I've already got this learning curve, you know, at least partially tackled. So let's just double down and, and, and not quit and, mm-hmm. and do the best that I can. And I fully recommitted to it, had about two months left and it was awesome, man. It, I sold 47 the next month and, and, uh, ended up with 121 funded accounts, made $31,000, which for me was a huge win. Like, yeah. That was more oh, than yeah. my dad had ever made. You know, I, I came back and I bought a, an Isuzu Rodeo with the Chrome <laughs> package. Heck yes. Yeah, dude, I was balling. That's man. so sick. Like balling, at least in my mind. That's was, so sick. It wasn't a Hummer, you know, but it was, it was, it my was, first it was year I made there. 12 grand and bought AirPods. So you were beating me. I thought I was rich <laughs> with AirPods. So you were beating me for sure. Yeah, you know, but, but I was really grateful for that. You know, and it, nowadays, I mean, $31,000, it's kind of funny looking back at it, but it, that to this day, that was the most important money I've ever made in my life. Hands down. Why do you say that? Because I didn't quit. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't tuck my tail between my, my legs and, and go home when it was really, really hard. Yeah. And um, that mixed with the fact that it was more than my parents ever made. And it was, to me, that was a very substantial amount of money. Yeah. And, and, and because that gave me the confidence to come back the next year as a sales manager. And I was a top first year <laughs> manager in the company, made $156,000. Yeah. Which was the second most important money I've ever made in my life because it really broke those limiting belief systems. Like if you'd asked me as a teenager, or even as a young, you know, young man, best case scenario, you know, if I play my cards right, I'd say maybe I can make a hundred thousand dollars in a year. Mm-hmm. Like if everything worked out perfectly. Yeah. And so to make that my second year, it really just opened that whole paradigm. I'm like, Oh, okay, well what's next? You know? And so then it was a thousand percent. Yeah. Next year I made, you know, 256,000 as a, the number two manager in the company. And then, regional manager the next year and then became eventually a, you know, a VP of sales and 121 sales teams, 41 States and a 15 year leadership career. But it's crazy looking back, Zach. And like, dude, if I would have quit, like most guys did, yeah, where would that have changed the, the trajectory of my life? I guarantee I wouldn't be even close to what I've been able to build because of the skill sets that I had, not, not just the skill sets through door sales, but that tenacity and that grit and really, you know, running with that idea of being comfortable, being uncomfortable. Yeah. I really believe that one of the most valuable skill sets is being able to be comfortable, being uncomfortable. Yeah. Especially nowadays, man. So many guys mm-hmm. look for the easy way. They want the path of least resistance. Yeah. And what I found is that usually taking the hard road is actually the best road. And even in real estate today, like a lot of the, the most profitable deals that we've found are deals that have a lot of hair on them. They're kind of, they're kind of ugly mm-hmm. and or they're scary because they're hard. Yeah. But so everybody else passes over the deal and then we can come in and really maximize that and take advantage of it. hundred percent. And you just said, so you just said two, two things that I think are really important. Number one, like that was the most important money you've ever made, even though that is absolutely not the most money you've ever made. That was the most important money. I totally agree with because of what you learned. And the next thing you said is through not quitting is where you learned, like where you developed grit, tenacity and like there was an article where it was like, what is like one common trait of every successful top 1% person and tenacity was on the list. 
right? And in my opinion, the only time you learn tenacity, you don't just learn tenacity by like just doing something and like being good at it. I don't think you learn. I think you learn tenacity when you are like on the brink of quitting consistently and you don't. I think that's when you kind of learn it, in my opinion. 100% agree with you on that. I hope you guys are enjoying this episode so far. It was brought to you by Alchemy Sales Coaching. Now, I typically don't run ads, um, but I feel very strongly about Alchemy Sales Coaching. I started doing one-on-one coaching with Doug back in 2019, and since then, I have gone and not only blown up my career and my earnings, um, but it's really helped me through just the ups and downs of life. Now, the reason I feel so strongly about Alchemy is because it's a group of individuals not only focusing on furthering their sales career, but they're diving deep into inner work. Um, and becoming the best version of yourself so you can show up and be the best version of yourself. Um, Not only that, if you have any interest in doing any one-on-one coaching with me, I exclusively do all of my one-on-one coaching through Alchemy. Um, So for full access to me, go and check out Alchemy. I think you'll absolutely love it. It's alchemysalescoaching.com. We will also go and post um, the links in our bio and on stories, et cetera. So go check it out. You know, in in our home, we got four kids ages eight through 16. And we, one of my favorite, you know, family mottos is all rich don't quit. And my kids say it to each other now all the time. It's beautiful. That's so my, sick. My eight year old little girl. She's <laughs> awesome. She's always like, dad, if, if I ever say, Hey, I'm going to quit it. You know, it's something she's like, Hey dad, all reds don't quit. It is the <laughs> coolest thing. And, um, that's amazing. You know, they, we got a cold plunge a few months ago and I challenged all my kids to jump in there and, uh, Man, it was cool. They, they made playlists, you know, like mentally prep for it, music and everything. And and uh, that next morning, they ended up getting in there, and my two oldest girls got in together. And I thought there's no chance they'd make more than like three minutes. Yeah. For the record, I, mean, I haven't told them this, my record's like five or six minutes, right? Yeah. They get in 11 minutes. <laughs> this is 40-degree water, right? Oh, my gosh. 11 minutes. I was so proud of them. And then my you know, my other kid, my son gets that in. It can't even be good for him. I, On it, a side it, note, that cannot be good for, uh, for Mom's freaking out. She's like, Dad, stop this. Right. Just stop this. Get frostbite, out. frostbite can be fixed, and then, I think. And then my son gets in. You know, he's 11. He goes six minutes to try to keep up with him. And, you know, my my little daughter's like, hey, don't quit. All right, don't quit. And the whole time, like, I'm like, hey, 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 hon, that's not exactly like the meaning of it. Like, don't quit after six minutes. It's okay if he gets out now. But I was proud of him. That's proud, so proud rad. Dad moment. Dude, I love that. that. Is so like that. I feel like that's the important stuff. And I think that's like, if you can go and get those points across as, as a kid, you can go and teach them. Again, another assumption, like you can go and teach them the lessons that you learned the hard way. Right. And like by by not having everything you needed. You can go and teach them and still give them everything they need. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. go give them a really good life, but also teach them extremely important lessons. Because I think in most cases, it's one or the other. You either have a really tough life and you learn some very important lessons early, or you have a really good life growing up and you don't really learn the lessons that I, I think people need to go and learn. Right. And I feel like it's a really hard thing to, I'm not a parent, obviously. So this is me critiquing every parent <laughs> having no experience in it. So disregard that entirely. Um, but like, it's cool to, to go and see, cause obviously I have goals as a parent when I am a parent, it's cool to go and see stuff like that implemented. Like that's, that's so cool. On that note, kind of a tangent, but I mean, parenting's it's by far the most fulfilling thing I've ever done in my, in my life, but it's also the hardest thing. Like it's so, it's just challenging. There's no like, you know, Bible on how to be a great parent. Yeah. Um, but it's really fun to be able to take, you know, all those things that maybe I, I, I wish were different for me when I was a kid 
and then be able to try to incorporate those to be the best father and husband that I can be. Mm-hmm. And I, mean, I can share some stories with you, but um, one that comes to mind that's fresh is like my daughter, she's six, turned 16 recently, and she really wanted a, a Tesla Model 3. Like she was stoked about it, right? Yeah. My mom's got one, and she's like, hey, this is what I want. And I like it because it's safe, you know, and like the autonomous driving, a lot, there's a lot of benefits for a teenager. But I'm like, hell no, we're not going to do that. You're not going to get a Tesla Model 3 for your first car, right? And after about two months of saying no, which, by the way, um, when you're a parent and you teach your kids, like, salesmanship and that no means yes and everything else, it actually can come back to bite you pretty hard. <laughs> She's like, yeah, you're okay, screwed. Dad said no, so uh, that What's means another yes, way to so ask? I come back at this thing. I mean, now, we, like, I'm not a pet person, like, at all. Now we have... Cat, a cat. We have a dog. <laughs> we have, she has a Tesla Model Three. Fast forward. Yes, yeah, yeah, we get to it. it. She's she got, got, it. got it. But uh, so she's winning. She's winning. She's great. She's a great salesperson. Which, by the way, all my children. Um, before I forget, I want to share this because I know a lot of your audience is door-to-door salespeople. No matter how affluent or abundant or whatever, um, they are all required to go out and do at least one year of door-to-door sales. That's amazing. I believe that strongly in it. I mean, it teaches psychology and tenacity and grit you know, personal development, the, um, the leadership from that, the personal communication. Mm-hmm. And there's so many soft skills that really apply to just winning in life and in business. hundred percent. And so, um, with my daughter after two months of saying no, finally, I'm like, you know what, actually the right answer should be, you can have anything you want, you know, as long as you can figure out how to get enough passive reoccurring income to pay for that expense, especially when it's a, um, depreciating asset or a luxury item, like, you know, a new vehicle. So I said, okay, listen, it's going to be $350 a month on a car payment. So if you want that, then figure out a way to get that much passive reoccurring income from rental. I, I love real estate personally. So yeah. figure out how to do that. And then the answer is yes. So we put our heads together and um, she'd been, she got a job when she was 14. She's had a few jobs now on her own fruition. I didn't even ask her to do it. She's very industrious. And she bought some Bitcoins, some Ethereum, as well as a few stocks. And so those appreciate a lot in that two year period. So we sold all of those assets and she JV'd or joint ventured with me on a duplex down in Vineyard. And so now she's a partial owner of a duplex and that kicks off $300 uh, per month in passive recurring income. Mm-hmm. And the other $50, I'm like, Hey, mom's always complaining about driving you guys around all the, you know, the kids sports and recitals and everything else. So I'll pay you, you, you know, whatever amount per hour to be like an Uber driver. Yeah. <laughs> so now she's making four or $500 a month. And so it pays for her Tesla. But and mom's all, stoked. And mom's stoked. Talk about a win, win, win. But she's not, she didn't eat up any of her nest egg. It's fully invested in the real estate, which is also appreciating. So she's still making a good return on her investment. Mm-hmm. It's just that cash flow that's paying for the lifestyle that she really wants. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to teach my kids, right? And that's something that I never knew about that growing up. And for the record, if anybody's listening to this, it's not your fault that you don't understand, you know, finances and investing and compound interest and taxes and everything else. The school system doesn't, doesn't teach it, yep. which is a whole nother tangent going on as, as to why yeah. I think that's the case. Cause yeah. I think that free agency, you know, it's just not what maybe big brother wants for us. Right. And so, yeah. but it's, it's not your fault if you don't already know about this, but the future is your responsibility. And mm. so it's ours, you know, and we live in the most amazing time where you can go, you can learn anything on a podcast, in books, mentors, you know, Google. And so, but anyway, my, my main point there was just, I love real estate. I love passive income. And for me as a dad, it's really fun to be able to try to try to teach some of those things to kids. And I yeah. think that kids learn the best through participation, not just like telling them something. Right? Yeah. 
But anyway, I don't want to go off on a tangent. No, on, I love on parenting, that. I but. love that. I, I love that. I'm glad you did because all the parents that listen are like, this kid does not know what he's saying. Um, so I'm glad you said something. That's really cool. I like that a lot. Um, so then you went from from Vivint Smart Home, selling Smart Home, managing Smart Home, being a VP at Vivint. Then you transitioned and helped roll out Vivint Solar. So moved to California at that point, or what did that look like when you moved and you were running running Vivint Solar? Yep. So um, after 13 years with Vivint Smart Home, uh, we, we launched Vivint Solar, and they were crushing it. I put a lot of my top sales guys into Vivint Solar, and they were loving it. Just a really good culture and a lot of growth. And I mean, tr- honestly speaking, I, I, just, I really missed my favorite years at Vivint were actually way back in the beginning when it was just a white canvas, and there was so much autonomy, and it was all about just recruiting the right people, developing leaders, and going out and crushing it. It wasn't so much about, um, you know, creation cost or the board or shareholders and some of those things, which are natural growing, you know, transition cycles of of a business. Yeah. And by the way, it was really cool having, you know, seeing, you know, uh, Goldman Sachs come in as our equity partner and then by Blackstone, seeing both those two huge equity, you know, plays in that evolution of the business. Man, we got started. It was a little office space over on State Street, Troon Park. Yeah. Four little offices, a ping pong table. That was the first year, right? Doing 8,000 accounts total and seeing the company grow in this juggernaut of a multi-billion dollar company and Vivint Solar multi-billion. So, so incredible. Yeah. Incredibly grateful for that opportunity to be along for the ride. Yeah. And to be able to contribute at least in a small capacity. Yeah. So, um, anyway, truth be told, I, I got kind of bored. I don't say burned out, but a little bit bored. It's like Groundhog Day, right? After f- 13 years, kind of doing the same thing. And so I saw these guys crushing in Vivint Solar. Um, they gave me an opportunity to come over and, and help run the uh, Northern California market with eight teams. Moved my family out there and uh, loved it. Two years um, helping grow the business. And then, you know, at that point in 2017, I was making more money from my real estate portfolio. And I'd hit my goal of 40 by 40. So sorry, in the intro, you said 1,000 by 40. It was actually 40 doors by age 40 okay. to begin with. That's a whole other story. Maybe we'll come back to that in a second. Yeah, absolutely. And so hit that goal. And then I was like, hey, you know what? Um, this is going to be four months in Chicago, turning into 15 years. It's probably a good time, you know, just to kind of move on to the next step in my life. I do believe that life's full of chapters, and it's really fun to be able to close one chapter and start a new chapter. Yeah. You get a lot of energy from that. And I think, you know, life's short, so, you know, today's the day. Today's right? the day. You got to get after it. So, Absolutely. So that was kind of the overall um, process. Loved it. It's super grateful for it. Learned so much from it. It's really blessed my life, really set me up. And, you know, then, then fast forward. So in 2017, I, I stopped um, door sales, and I went into what's called syndicating. So syndicating capital. So you find a big deal, multifamily deal, you know, top golf, uh, development projects, whatever else, and you bring your friends in with their capital to help you take down the deal. Yeah. And so I started doing that with a lot of the uh, door-to-door salespeople I worked with. Mm-hmm. Had a few hundred investors with me. I did over a dozen projects and and absolutely loved it. You know, creating value for for people. What I've and same with the fund. So so I did that for two or three years in 2020. I decided to launch Axie Partners, yep. a real estate fund, with a few of my partners. And what I've loved about it, you know, Zach, real quick, is when I stepped out of that leadership role at Vivint, I realized, and I got into real estate, which I'm passionate about, and it was looking at due diligence and numbers and spreadsheets and deals. And what I really missed was that interpersonal development, like working with my friends yeah. and helping develop leaders. Yeah. And so then I was like, okay, well, how can I create that inside of the real estate space? 
And that's what helped lead to the formation of Axie Partners. That's cool. Yeah. So now with Axie Partners, you know, we're a full, you know, investment firm doing commercial real estate across the country. But what we do that's very unique is it's called experiential investing. So on our homepage, there it says experiential investing. And it's taking, you know, normal traditional real estate and mixing it with experiences and education. And so every month we do an experiential webinar where we talk for a full hour with the top real estate players in the country and a Q&A session, just teaching about how to do real estate the right way. Mm. Every time we close on a deal, we do an entire webinar for an hour on how we found the deal, how we sourced it, how we found the debt, the business model, full transparency. And so, and our guys have loved that because, you know, a lot of people, it's that whole idea of instead of giving a man a fish, teach him how to fish. Yeah, A lot of guys want to be doing big real estate, commercial real estate. They just either lack the competence or the, the confidence yeah, yeah. or those two things, right? So to be able to add value in that way has been really fun for me because that's what I, that's actually what I missed the most about door to door sales yeah. was being able to add real value that the human aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Right? That's so cool. I didn't actually know that about, about Axia and on that too, competence breeds confidence. So if you can go and just educate and inform, that's going to go and get people confident enough to go and do it on their own. That's probably why people are so bought in and love it. That's really cool. I did not know that about Axia at all. Yeah. Oh, more, more than half of our entire investor base are door to door sales reps, leaders, managers, executives, owners. That's really, really cool. I love that. So within Axia then, so you started Axia, um, you had a really, really good run with Vivint, you dominated. And what you say about having chapters in life is really cool. Cause I think a lot of people wrap their identity into what they're doing, like into what they do. Does that make sense? Like if you go and wrap your identity into Vivint or into whatever you're doing, it's going to be really, really hard to ever transition, move on or go and do something else. So uh, I think that's kind of a superpower that you have in a way, which is really cool that you look at it that way. But then on Axia, so you went and you started Axia right after, um, actually you said something really cool. You said at the point of 15 years in or 14 years in, you were making more from your real estate portfolio than from what you were doing. And that stands out to me because I know how much you make managing door to door teams. Like I understand how significant that is. And that was from your 40 doors that you had. Were those single family, multifamily, break that down for me, the numbers, if you don't mind, just, just out of curiosity, like how did you go and get to that point? Were you grabbing two doors a year? Were you just, did you just capitalize big time in 2008? Like what, or all of the above? How did you go and get to that point? So I'll try to keep it high level because we could do an hour or two podcast on that specifically. But when I was 30 <laughs> years old, I'd been talking about, you know, wanting financial freedom for a long time. And I, I defined financial freedom as having enough reoccurring passive income to cover your entire cost of living. Yep. Right? And passive income means where you're not trading your time for the money, right? So you're yep. making money while you're sleeping. And so I've been saying that for a long time, but I'm like, you know what? There's a big difference between wanting something and being committed to it. And so when I was 30 years old, I sat down, I remember very clearly on a Sunday for four hours and I just reverse engineered exactly what I would need to achieve this financial freedom. And so you start off, it's really simple. And for your listeners, I'll, I'll share the, the process real quick. Take a spreadsheet. The first line item is what is your cost of living? That's everything, your rent, mortgage, gas, you know, cell phone, all of it. Mm-hmm. So let's say it's uh, 200 grand. Mm-hmm. The next one is what's my current passive income? Maybe you have a townhome, maybe you have a fourplex, maybe you have some dividend stocks, maybe you have some vivid residuals, whatever. Yep. Say it's $50,000. Yep. The next line item is what's the difference or what's the gap still needed to achieve true financial freedom? So in that scenario, that'd be 200,000 minus 50, so $150,000. Yep. Next line is how many years am I willing to commit to achieving true financial freedom? And for me, it was 10 years. 
Okay. So then the next line item is you just divide that $150,000 by the 10 years. And that's how much pa- new passive income you need per year. So it'd be $15,000 per year. Mm-hmm. Right. So you just kind of reverse engineer those big goals that are kind of scary mm-hmm. into more digestible, smaller goals. Right. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Right. So it's just, it's all about making it very realistic and measurable. And so I was 30 years old and I said, okay, in order to get $15,000 of new passive income per year, I need to, I need to have a total of 40 real rental properties, 40 mm-hmm. doors. And so the, the goal was 40 by 40. And so I changed my, my passwords on my phone. Um, I put as my back screen on my iPhone on my, uh, whatever phone was back then. <laughs> and uh, I just really internalized it. And every single Sunday I'd sit down and I'd measure my progress on 40 by 40. And so I think the key there was just that clarity on that goal. Yeah. And so I hit that goal when I was 36. That's um, so sick. Hit that goal and I was, I was pretty proud, you know, took my wife to Ruth and Chris, celebrated for a day. And the next day I was like, all right, well, what's next? And um, what's next was I wanted to have ownership in a thousand doors by age 40. Mm-hmm. And that's when I retired from door door sales completely and went full time into real estate. Mm. Started doing a syndication and started buying more fourplexes, large multifamily, et cetera. So that was the process. And then I hit that goal of ownership in a thousand doors the last month before my 41st birthday. So I hit that one too, like right. That's right there. so sick. Yeah. Thank you. It was, it was That's a, amazing. It, it was a fun process, man, looking back at it. And I think the key there again was that the, having it written down, there's real power behind writing down your goals. It helps you to hold yourself accountable, but it also helps you see those incremental improvements, yeah. which is a big motivator for Right. Yeah. And I, I also think along with that, like writing it down and everything you were doing in my mind. So we we here we're, we're releasing a journal. If you've ever heard of Casey's top 10, he mentored me big time growing up, had me write down my top 10 goals. And like I was looking at them consistently. I was erasing them, rewriting them down. I had them on my screensaver. Right. I had them everywhere. And kind of the what I learned that does it, you and what you were doing in this exact situation, you were completely rewiring your subconscious so that when you weren't thinking about it, you were thinking about it. So little things that you were doing subconsciously, like when you were on autopilot was actually putting you in the the right direction to go and take advantage of whatever it was. that was going to get you closer to a thousand doors by 40. And like when I've done that diligently, like really gone and wired my subconscious, I, everything I've set, I've done everything. So I want to, I want to chime in on that because some people talk about manifestations and about, you know, secreting things and like the law of attraction. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, it's really an interesting topic, to, but to me, I'm very logical, very left brain. Um, what I believe that really comes down to mainly is what's called the reticular activation system. Mm-hmm. And have you heard, have you heard of that before? I haven't, no. So it's a part of our brain where basically, and I'm not going to summarize this perfectly, but you know, about 98% of the information that comes in through our, our eyes, like the data that we see and that we, what we hear mm-hmm. is disregarded because it's not relevant. And only about 2% of what the, the, the data is that comes in is actually uh, remembered and, and held yeah. because it's what's important to us. Yeah. As an example, when I, my first, you know, out knocking doors on home security, I could literally walk down a street and by the end of the block, I could say, hey, there were three blue ADT signs on that street and two green signs <laughs> yeah. and one Montronics yep. because it was important to me. Mm-hmm. Right? And then, you know, with solar, same thing. I tell you how many pan- how many homes had, pa- had panels on them. It's kind of like a curse because that's so true. Everywhere I go, I see security signs. It drives me nuts. Yeah. Or if you're going to go to the st- you're going to go buy a, you know, white Camry sedan 
and you're in the market for it. And then all of a sudden you start looking around, there's white Camry sedans everywhere. Everywhere. It's because it's now relevant. It's important to you. Mm -hmm. And so your reticular activation system is paying attention to it because it actually matters to you. Mm -hmm. I've heard that explained in a different, so Sean Aker, um, writes the, the happiness advantage. And in that he Great talks book. about, yep. Yeah, the, the Tetris effect is what he calls it. The Tetris effect is when, when you become aware of something. And I guess exactly what you're saying, actually, when something becomes of relevance to you, you notice it everywhere. Right. And I think that's exactly what you were doing. Like, sorry to go on like a tangent about, about that. We're stoked on these journals. We're getting them released ASAP. Um, but literally you're going in like, you're hardwiring your brain to think, okay, the most what is what is relevant to me is getting a thousand doors ownership and a thousand doors. So then everything that you're doing when you're on autopilot is, is kind of pushing in that direction. It's so freaking cool. That's the other, really cool. The last thing I want to mention that I think really helped me to be able to hit those goals was one was the clarity and writing it down. Secondly was adding or tying so much purpose behind the goal. Mm. So it's not just the money. Yeah. It, in fact, it's not the money. It's the freedom. And there's a big difference there when you're, track you know just care about money and again money is great it's a tool it's a magnifier it's important right but really what's motivating me is freedom because i realized that that money those doors those rental properties would create true financial freedom which would then in turn create real time freedom which is even mm. more important mm. and the time freedom would then give me lifestyle freedom which i love exactly and so the more purpose and intention and you know, and, and thinking through my mind, like, hey, I want this financial freedom so that I can be able to spend time with my kids and go snowboarding when I'm 80 years old and be able to have my, my three daughters have amazing, you know, weddings and honeymoons. And like, the more you can tie great purpose and like good, I, I don't know how to say that. But no, the, yeah, emotion, like you're, you're literally taking emotion that way when things get really hard. And when you're like, oh, shit, like that seems like a lofty, scary going back to like the fact that it's scary goal. Right. And there's that point of wanting to quit rather than just pulling from your, your little jar of whys, your whys, like, I want to make 150 grand passively. It's like, no, no, no. Like, this is why I'm doing it. There's emotion behind wanting to go and be able to snowboard with your kids. And you may not even have the kids at that point, but that is your why. Like, I, I think that's exactly what you're doing. You were tying, you were tying more reasons for wanting it and also emotional reasons for wanting it, which are way more powerful than just the thought of wanting money. Right. Yeah, the idea of chasing another, another zero that, that doesn't really motivate. It gets old. Yeah. Yeah. It gets super old. That's so cool. See, that's, that's rad. So actually came to be honestly, and you guys have done some cool things like on a total side note, while we're just on Axia, what, are, what would you say are some of your favorite projects you've been a part of? Cause I can tell you my favorite recently that you guys have been a part of. That's been so freaking cool. And it's cool to like walk in like, yeah, yeah. Out of curiosity for you to share, like what's your favorite projects you've been a part of with Axia? Well, let me back up a little bit because you'd ask kind of like how I got those doors. So just, Oh yeah. Sorry. This, sorry. Because this is probably <laughs> more relevant for guys who are like actually out knocking doors right now, a little bit younger. Yeah. Um, so for me, I bought four properties, uh, four townhomes. Um, and I bought those all cash, um, back in when I was like 24, 25. And then a few years later, they'd appreciate doubled in value. Market's been really good. And so I did what's called a 1031 exchange, which is where you sell a property and you exchange that into a like kind property. So another piece of real estate and there's no taxes on that transaction. So mm -hmm. I sold each one of those four townhomes and 1031 exchange into four, fourplexes, And I used that, you know, $200,000 of, of equity in each one of those as a down payment on the fourplex. And so I had to put $0 out of pocket to go from four doors to 16 doors. Mm. Okay. So, cause that, all that equity can yeah, be yeah. down payment. Fast forward three years later, each one of those fourplexes had gone up tremendously in value. So they'll take each fourplex, one fourplex, and then 1031 exchange into two 
new fourplexes each. So I went from the four fourplexes to eight fourplexes, now 24 doors. So you're doubling doors with no cash out of yes. pocket. I literally went from four doors, did the same thing again, uh, again in like 2018 or 19. So I went from four doors to 64 doors, 62 doors, sorry, um, with no additional cash out of pocket. Mm-hmm. Simply by paying attention to the velo- the equity, the velocity of money, and 1031 exchanging that and continuing to do so at a pretty aggressive pace. Yeah. And so a lot of guys ask me, so I'm like, hey, how do I go and build a you know, scale portfolio? That's one of the ways to really scale quickly. Yeah. Without having to put a lot of new cash into it as you go. So I just want to share that with you guys because that was, that was I have a question great. on that. And this is, may not be important to anyone listening. This is literally for personal, like just for me, a very important factor of your formula that you just explained was you bought them at the right time where they were going to go and appreciate, right? Do you feel like there have been times since where it is just not the right time to go and buy a property cash because you could very well depreciate and lose money? Or what, what are your, what's your two cents on that? Like the last two years of real estate has been kind of crazy, yeah. right? With rates and then with costs as well. Right. And what would you say, like, what would your advice be there? Because a lot of guys are looking at buying a home in this market, which is very different from a lot of other markets. And I've heard a lot of really helpful things, but it's honestly, maybe it's just the confidence and competence thing. Like I'm not the most competent, so probably not the most confident, but people talk about time in the market is much more important than timing the market. Yeah. Right. And what would your two cents be on Two things. First of all, I bought that all cash to begin with because I was scared of debt back then. And I was always told that, you know, debt's bad. Today, that's completely changed. What I believe is that debt is one of the best parts of real estate, and it's a real wealth magnifier. The key, though, is it's always got to be fixed interest, low interest, long-term debt that creates positive cash flow. Because mm. okay? the positive cash flow helps you to pay for your debt payment, your your mortgage payments. Yeah. And the biggest risk in real estate is not being able to service your debt and then, therefore, losing the asset to the bank. Yep. Right? So as long as you have positive cash flow coming in, you should be able to weather any types of, you know, downturns or, or uh, negative economic cycles. Yeah. And so I'm big on cash flow. Um, if, we do, if we do, like, a round two here, I would dive deep into cash flow. We definitely will. Flow, yeah, we definitely will. And we'll, we'll go very hyper-focused on real estate. Yep. And so back then, I was adverse to debt. Today, I, I love debt as long, again, as long as it's fixed, low interest, and creates positive cash flow. And so that's the first thing I was going to share. The second thing is, when you're, you know, as, as for the timing of the market, I think you got to be really careful right now. You know, in the last 14 years, the market's been incredible. Uh, there's a huge tailwind behind us. Basically, if you were in real estate, you're making money. Yeah. For the most part. Unless yeah. you're an idiot. Like you're making you're making a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. And that's definitely turning the you know, that we're at the very top of the cycle. Last year was the first time we started to see, you know, really soften up a lot. Looking forward, I'm not gonna give you predictions on it because I think it's a fool's errand to predict the future. And anytime somebody tries to tell me what what is gonna, gonna happen, it's actually more like a red flag. You know, <laughs> nobody knows. Especially nowadays because all the uh, historical um, cycles and whatnot, it's all out the window because there's so much quantitative easing and the Fed is so involved in the, in the markets. So the free markets are really have really changed to now be the Fed's market. Yeah. And so it's really hard to predict all that. I will say that now is not the time to just like throw mud at the wall and see what sticks or yeah. be speculative in real estate. Yeah. I think that's a terrible time to jump in, you know, doing flips and spec homes and all, all that stuff. I think now is the time to be working with people that actually, you know, it, whether it's mentors, masterminds, a fund, you know, Axia, whatever, working with people that have actually been through some cycles and they know what they're doing and there's some experience behind it. Yeah. Because, you know, one of the biggest risks in real estate is simply not knowing what you don't know. It's that one step in the due diligence or that one little thing that ends up being a landmine that blows up the whole deal for you. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think you have to be really cautious right now. 
But at the same time, in my opinion, there's two types of people in life. There's spectators and there's participants. I always want to be a participant. I'd rather be in the ring, you know, competing and, and actually buying real. I think so many guys sat on the sidelines a lot since 2017 saying, I'm going to wait until this market corrects, until the recession, until yeah. the prices come down. And they've literally doubled since then. And they missed out on a huge opportunity. Yep. So, again, I think there's I, – I, I'm still buying real estate. Yeah. Aggressively. Um, I think that here in middle of 2023, Q2, Q3, is going to be some really, really good buying opportunities. And I'll finalize my thoughts by saying, yes, we are in some some choppy waters, and I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. But I'm actually really excited about that because the best opportunities – more millionaires are made in economic downturns than any other time in U.S. history. Yep. The best opportunities, if you're if if you know what you're doing and you're funded, will be in the next twelve months. Yeah, which is yeah, that's I mean that's very good news for a lot of people listening because that's one one question I've always had, and we will definitely do a part two where we just kind of do a course on real estate. Or I would love to if you're willing to. I would absolutely love to and just dive into like the nitty gritty of that and really go into details. Honestly, more so for my personal benefit than anybody's but if we can record it and post it then that'll benefit everyone else too but um yeah you please. asked like what, my, what i'm most excited about right now yeah so that, that was like kind of the, yes. the way i built it up right now what i'm most excited about is with our current fund we're it's our third fund offering it's a 40 million dollar equity raise we're right in the middle of that we're about halfway through that that raise right now and our anchor project is a 50 million dollar industrial warehouse right here in salt lake county mm-hmm. Two hundred thirty thousand square feet it's massive and we're so excited about that because, you know, all the uh, projections in real estate over the next five years is that industrial warehouse, like Amazon Fulfillment Centers, yep. will be the top performing asset in all of real estate. And so the timing's perfect on that one. We're really, really, really excited about that project. That's dope. And we just brought in Brandon Fugel, who, if you guys don't know who that is, he's the number one largest name in commercial real estate in Utah. We drive down I-15, literally Almost every single listing has Brandon Fugel's name on it. Yep. So I've seen him on one of the buildings that just got built on the way to Salt Lake from Orem. Yep. Actually, that's cool. So we brought him in as a partner as well. So really excited about where we're headed with, with Axie. You mentioned that you had something that you were thinking about. What? Top Golf. Honestly, it's just it's so sick because you just brought Top Golf into Vineyard. And we used to drive all the way up north. We used to drive 40 minutes to go to Top Golf. And it's like one of my favorite things ever. It's just cool. Like, it's really cool to know the face behind a building, if that makes sense. You see these buildings pop up. You see these things happen. And it's like, okay, no, it's, those are the Axie boys that went and did, did Top Golf. That's really cool. That I mean, that's just a fun one because we go play all the time. Yeah. At, um, yeah, Top Golf, that's something that you know, there's a real need here in the community, right? You got all these door sales companies, 72,000 college students. You got, you know, Silk and Slopes, all the tech money coming in. There's really no premium entertainment around. Um, just for the record, though, Top Golf was actually um, started that prior to Axia, so it's not actually an Axia. Oh, dope! Asset. It's something we had previous to that. Cool. Along with uh, a few other partners. That's very well. cool. Yeah, that, I'm, that that one got me jazzed. That was really cool. So, dude, again, hour flies by every time I do this, so I apologize. Um, I want to be super respectful of your your time and everyone else's as well. So, first and foremost, on top of everything, just thank you so much for making it out here. This has been honestly a blast and way more than what I had expected as far as like information that I'm getting. It's making me want to go and like dig deeper on this stuff with you. So thank you for that. To close it out though, this is kind of a, a fun outro for me. Um, so obviously, you know, the name of the podcast is today's the day, right? That the, the meaning behind that and the purpose of that is just like, if you can go and help other people approach life with the perspective of today is like their the day, that's all they've got. They don't have tomorrow. They can't change yesterday, but today's the day. People go live a much more fulfilled, accomplished, like 
colorful life, in my opinion. So that's kind of the goal of the podcast. So when we go and we bring people on, it's it's the most important thing and like the guiding principle of the podcast and guests is just bringing people on who live like today's the day. Um, and obviously you go and display that in a lot of different ways. One way in particular, just to segue, because I want to hear the story. To be crazy enough to go and hike Mount Everest, you have to go and approach things like, all right, like I'm going to go make the most of right now in every every way possible right that's just crazy to me and I've looked at that and that terrifies me like I've I've, like when I go and I listen to podcasts of people who hike Mount Everest or I hear stories about people dying on Mount Everest or I go and I watch like the documentary videos about it it like terrifies me what was your experience hiking Mount Everest to close this thing out and and again thank you for for being here Um, but I'm very curious like I I have to hear about it it'll eat at me (laughs) (laughs) so I uh you know, I just, I, well, I'll start by saying this. I feel like as a business person, the more adventure you can have, the better you show up in business as a father, as a husband. And, and at least for me, like I, I've been to 56 countries now and I, you know, skydiving a hundred times. And it's like, I love adventure. It makes me feel more alive. It makes me feel, I think I'm a little more aggressive, a little more my bold, bold in my approach. And so I think it's important that we always take time to be able to go out and actually live life a little bit. You know, yeah. when you say, you know, if you're like, what's today is the day mean to me? It's like, it's living your best life now, not next year down. Once you do something else, yeah. it's living life fully right now. Yeah. Right. I want to have no regrets in my life. It's so important to me. I lost my mom, um, unexpectedly about four years ago. Um, she, you know, at night she fell down and hit her head. She's living by herself. And, and, um, my dad and I found her, you know, passed, um, uh, she, she'd passed away. And, um, <clears throat> and that was really hard for me because I never had a chance to really make up you know, we had that dysfunctional family. I never had a chance mm-hmm. to really like make it right with her. Right. It's actually probably the only regret that I have in my life right now. Yeah. And, um, and my dad's got Parkinson's disease and he's about 10 years into that. So it's been, it just makes you think a lot about life and what really matters, you know, and how to live with no regret. And, yeah. um, and so one of my friends, Cameron Jensen, he's played a linebacker at BYU. He called me a few years ago, about go and say, Hey, I'm going to go do a Mount Everest expedition. You want to come? I'm like, hell yeah, man, let's go. Let's go. <laughs> you know, I, I'd have That's a- like my worst fear of a phone call. Cause I wouldn't say no. Yeah. Like I couldn't say no. Yeah. It, it had my, Kilimanjaro was on my bucket list. Um, but it ever sounds way, 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 way better, way cooler. So let's, let's do that. And as, as background context, I had, uh, I had hiked to the Y before, that was my mountaining experience. <laughs> that, that was your extent of... And, and as a Boy Scout, I had a, repel, oh, I, I had a repelling um, badge. So You're about as far along as me, Yeah. except I had Eagle Scout. I think I got like a few extra badges, too. I actually did, too. Good but, deal. There we go. I like it. Um, but so, so this, this expedition, so I uh, went to Dubai, you know, for two days and ended up nine, uh, 28 days in, in Nepal and then two days in China. So you got to go around the entire world. Um, you know, and, and just to clarify, so there were six guys that were going to the peak of Mount Everest and six guys that were going to Island Peak, which is, I was part of that group going to Island Peak. So we hiked up to Mount Everest base camp, spent a few days up there and it was the craziest stories, man. Two, our guide had been there two years previously when there's that big avalanche that killed 16 Sherpas and took out a bunch of people in the base camp. So as we pull into base camp, we stopped and he had a, he had a beer and he went over to his, his girlfriend's grave who had been there two, two years ago. She was actually a nurse up there and she had had gotten taken out. And so we went up to her, um, you know, her tombstone and, and poured out a beer, uh, to recognize her. He was crying. And then as we actually walk into the middle of base camp, another gentleman, um, he was from India. He fell on his knees and just like started crying, just weeping because he'd been there two years previously as well. 
there's a lot, of, a lot of trauma. He'd seen like six of his good friends died in their, in their expedition. And, um, anyway, it's, it's a real deal up there, man. Um, so what we did is we went up there a few days and then we, uh, then we hiked up to Island peak, which is 23,000, almost 23,000 elevation. And, uh, the last 300 feet is just a straight, uh, ice wall. So you have, you know, ice picks and your, and your crampons. And it's literally, it's the auctions level is so low that it's literally one step. And then you just, and then a little step and, and just, anyway, we made it, man. We summited and it was an incredible experience. Two of the, two, uh, the six of us, uh, they didn't make it. Um, they had, the Sherpas had to take them back down the mountain. Um, and what I learned though, so it was an 11 hour summit day, man, I could talk forever on this. I'll try to keep it short. No, you're good. 11 hour. So after, you know, 26 days of, of, of hiking, um, we got to base camp of, uh, Island peak, which was at 20, about 20,000 elevation, which by the way, the hardest part of this whole thing was actually the fact that when you sleep at night, your respiratory system, the cadence of your breathing, it doesn't adjust for the fact there's 40% less oxygen in the air. And so you'd fall asleep and about every 15 minutes, wake up and it feels like there's a sack of potatoes on you, on you and like you're, you're suffocating. So you wake up, hyperventilate and go back to bed for a little while. And then <laughs> that's, that's your night, you know, <laughs> but, but, but the, oh my hell. it's cold, but the Sherpas would, would, they're awesome. By the way, Sherpas are incredible. I have so much respect for these Sherpas. It's, what they do is, is next level. Are they just guides? Like a Sherpa's a guide? Yeah, yeah, they're the local. Um, they carry all your stuff for you and, and uh, the, the guides, basically. That's unbelievable. They, every night they'd boil water for us, put in these two huge cans, one for the bottom of your sleeping bag, keep your feet warm. The other one you put between your um, your legs to keep like your your, your blood, you know, your, your stay warm at nighttime. <laughs> and then a third bottle in the sleeping bag is so that you can actually uh, not have to get out to use the restroom. So we became pros <laughs> at actually inside your sleeping bag at nighttime, leaning out, rolling halfway over, peeing in, and a, peeing in a little bottle. That's and amazing. So you, you just spill and just give up. You I just mean, you just don't spill, bro. <laughs> you got twenty. You know, you got a month out there. Yeah. We didn't shower for twelve days in a row. You know, as oh we got my gosh, there's no warm water to, to do that with. And yeah, um, summit day, eleven day. Some took off at one in the morning. Most beautiful, incredible. You know, hike during the nighttime. Made it up there on the summit. It was incredible. What I what lesson learned though was um, it takes seven hours to get back down off that summit. And I was gassed, man. I was so stoked on the summit and so much adrenaline. And then you get up there and then you didn't save anything yeah, in the reserve. Seven hours and downhills actually can be even harder, you know, going down in ice and these crevices. And it was an incredible experience. So I do want to summit uh, Everest though. I'm going to wait. My son, he's, uh, he's 11. Uh, I think he and I are going to go do it together. He's a little bit older. That's so cool, man. That's dude. That's so rad. Dave, thank you again, man, for real. I appreciate you coming out here big time to be respectful of everybody's time. That'll be, that'll be this one. We'll definitely do a part two though. I appreciate you coming out here. Thank you. And then thank you everybody for tuning in. Much love. Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. Um, as always, it was a blast for me. I hope you got something out of this. If you got something out of this video of value, share this with a friend and please go show your love. We're on all streaming platforms, including YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Any ratings, comments, likes, shares, they go a very long way, and they make it so I can keep doing these things for you, and I would appreciate it greatly. So please go share with a friend. Until next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.